I think you start with the fact, I remember this feeling from covering it, is that it's all such a bewildering universe uh, that it's hard to know what's a mirror and what's a reflection and what's an actual image. Um, And, you know, I mean, listen, however many years now later, I still, I don't think I've ever said to another person whether I think he did it. This is Jim Newton, former reporter for the LA Times and story editor for Telephone Stories. It's utterly possible that he did or that he's so weird that he didn't. I mean, it's all so strange. It's, there's, so, there's no predicate for most of it. There's no, there's no other case that I can think of of international superstar who owns a, a zoo and a, a, you know, and a playground uh, that he can invite children to join with him where he's sort of childlike but also an adult. It, it's so aberrant in every respect that anything seems like it could have happened, you know, um, or that it could be so weirdly innocent that there there's even room, there, somehow there's room for something that's otherwise inconceivable, which is an adult man inviting children to spend the night with him doing so and having it not be weird. (laughs) I mean, that's weird in and of itself. So there's, it's like, you really almost have to suspend disbelief at a certain level and, and accept it on the terms that Jackson created for himself. And yet still also be open to the fact that they're open to the possibility that it's just straight up child molestation. Um, And that he just did it as a, as a rich, famous person instead of as an, average schlub. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 5, Walking Away with a Lot of Money. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Bubba, what's up, man? Hey, Omar. Telephone Stories co-producer, Omar Krug. Hey, listen, before we get into this, I wanted to say congratulations. When's, oh, when's Yeah, man, when's she due? Uh, do this spring, um, and uh, we're we're like really excited. Oh, excited or terrified? And by the way, we've uh, got a ton of stuff if you need it. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I think we're fine on the stuff. We're trying to kind of keep it down to a minimal. But okay. yeah, I mean, I'm kind of terrified. Okay. Well, the first thing you're going to need are a bunch of diapers, and I just happen to have like 10 boxes of diapers from the Obama administration, I think. Oh, I didn't know they still would last from that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know the best part about those diapers? What? They don't leak very much. 
Oh, I get it. Yeah. All right. Cool. All um, right. So, so we were uh, we were on the last time we talked. We we're in the fall of 1993, where Michael Jackson canceled his tour. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. November 12, 1993, Jackson canceled his world tour that okay. was sponsored by Pepsi, and his lawyer Burt Fields gave a press conference to announce the cancellation. As Taylor flew to Mexico City and convinced Michael that he should face this problem, that he should have professional treatment, and he should do it right away, even at the cost of canceling the rest of his tour. And that's exactly what he did. He canceled the rest of his tour at a cost of many, many millions of dollars and has placed himself in professional hands to be cured of this addiction. And did everybody believe the narrative that Jackson was a drug addict at that point? Um, not everybody. According to the LA Times, before canceling the tour, on November 8th and November 10th, Jackson gave a deposition in Mexico City over a lawsuit that alleged that he'd stolen all or parts of the songs Thriller, The Girl Is Mine, and We Are The World. The deposition was recorded on camera, and here, a lawyer questioned Jackson on his songwriting process. I'd like to turn Mr. Jackson to uh, generally how you write songs. Uh, can you tell me uh, what process you go through when, when you're writing a song, if there is a general process? Well, the process I go through is um, songs kind of just come. They create themselves, like I said before. I'm just the source through which they come. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's very spiritual. It's like standing under a tree and letting a leaf fall and trying to catch it. It's that beautiful. According to Vanity Fair, Jackson's lawyers claimed he was impaired during the deposition, and the other side said he was just fine. The program, A Current Affair, interviewed one of the lawyers who deposed Jackson in Mexico in 93, Howard Manning, who was reported to have been working on the song-stealing case for six years already. We were not informed of any addiction problem. Uh, we could not see any evidence of, a, of an addiction problem. The witness was alert, he didn't slur, he answered questions, just as he had in 1989. He's a very smart man. Watching the deposition video closely now, Jackson seems pretty all together, as he described coming up with songs. I um, woke up with this melody in my head. So what would be the motivation for faking a drug addiction then? Well, rumors that Jordy Chandler had given a description of Jackson's genitals to authorities had already made it as far as MTV News. L.A. police declined to comment on reports that they were prepared to strip search the star to confirm his 13-year-old accuser's description of distinctive genital markings. Whoa, was that Tabitha Soren? Oh, yeah, she was such a babe. She's my first crush. You know, she's a fine art photographer now, by the way. You know, my first crush was um, Ginger on Gilligan's Island. Oh, that's because you're a little older than me. Mine was probably Tabitha Soren and Topanga from Boy Meets World. Nice. Yeah, I got an autographed picture of her. <laughs> Listen, I think my wife might be listening, so let's get uh, okay. back on track here. So, um, did uh, the what did the did the police ever act on the information about his genitalia or anything? Well, they did, but at the time, at this point, they couldn't because, of course, Jackson was missing. But on November nineteenth, according to Vanity Fair police who they might have been concerned that Jackson could have the markings on his private parts altered while he was in Europe. So they raided the offices 
of both Jackson's dermatologist and his plastic surgeon looking for medical records, but they were all apparently missing. Yeah, but but Jackson's um, attorneys insisted that he had a drug problem. Yeah, and according to the LA Times, they obtained this sworn deposition from Jackson's personal physician, this guy David Forecast of London, backing up the statements that Jackson was under treatment for drug addiction, but it, um, it did not state where he was under treatment. Up until that point, like when Jackson collapsed backstage in Singapore, the doctors were just saying he was suffering from simply migraine headaches. All right, so he canceled his tour in Mexico City the day after the deposition, but then he caught a plane to Europe to go into rehab. Right, but then he was missing. Michael Jackson remains in hiding. This is Mike Watkiss reporting for A Current Affair in 1993. All reports that he's in Canada or France, or Switzerland, remain completely unsubstantiated. So it's a guessing game at this point, is that right? Right, because when Jackson left Mexico City with Elizabeth Taylor and her husband, the plane refueled in Canada. So some people thought that he hopped off the plane to check into rehab there. But then once the plane got to Europe, the tabloids and the police totally lost track of him. But the Los Angeles district attorney is said to be fed up playing the guessing game. Mike Watkiss on a current affair again. Daily Variety reports that D.A. Gil Garcetti has sent a letter to Michael's attorneys demanding they reveal his whereabouts within the next 24 hours. The investigation is continuing. L.A. District Attorney Gil Garcetti speaks to a camera that is jammed in his face here. It's an aggressive, hopefully very fair, thorough investigation, but I cannot confirm or deny and will not confirm or deny any exact uh, action that either our office or the district or LAPD or any other agency may be doing. Ah, good old Gil. You know, he's a, you know, he's a photographer too, by the way. He did a whole book on uh, Disney Concert Hall where I work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful stuff. And his son, also a great guy, is our goddamn mayor now. I love him. Hey, so Gil declined to be interviewed for this show, but he was so nice about it. And I think he accidentally added me to his friends and family email list because I get these like personal recommendations from him, like go see King Tut in L.A. before it's too late. <laughs> That's I'm funny. Like, oh my god, I think it's my grandpa, but it's like it's Gil Garcetti. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So Garcetti at the time was pissed about Jackson disappearing because Garcetti was the district attorney, and the cops were pissed too. And Jordy Chandler's lawyer, Larry Feldman, was also pissed off. Innocent people do not fear a thorough investigation and trial. I never would have believed that Michael Jackson, a superstar who says he's innocent, is afraid to come to my office and say it under oath. It's not what innocent people do. Another disappearance happened. Norma Stakos, who, according to multiple sources, was Jackson's chief of staff. According to Diane Diamond, in her thrilling and informative book about the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love, Stakos ruled Neverland with an iron fist and fired workers when Jackson wanted them gone. June Chandler testified at Jackson's 2005 criminal trial that Norma Stakos was the person her family went through in order to see Michael. According to the LA Times, Stakos disappeared days before she was to be questioned by the police. She uh, got lost in the wind. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. Uh, She was either fired or uh, left the country. I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I remember she went to Greece or something. Whether Stakos intended to avoid giving sworn testimony or just left for vacation, 
it didn't look good for Jackson. I know she's coming back, and I've told this to the police, Howard Weitzman said to Vanity Fair. To use the word flee is egregious. Yeah, well, uh, we really wanted to talk to her. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss again. I have no idea how that occurred or who got rid of her or what happened. We truly wanted to talk to her. And you said Howard Weitzman was representing Jackson. Um, Was Burt Fields still on the team, too? Yes, Burt Fields continued to rep Jackson through the fall. But now his PI, Anthony Pelicano, seemed to be kind of off to the side in all the press conferences, not running the defense in the media like he had that August and September. According to one source covering the case, incoming Jackson attorney Johnny Cochran sidelined Pelicano because he didn't trust him. You had Anthony Pelicano, who in those days was not in jail, but he was the spokesperson. He was the spokesperson, which I'll never under, quite understand, that was chosen by the defendant to talk about this case. He was uh, someone who, in these press conferences, was conceding uh, that Michael Jackson slept with children, with little boys. Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, talking about the scandal at the Los Angeles County Bar Association event, Frozen in Time, the Michael Jackson cases, in 2010. So for a plaintiff's lawyer, like I was and am, you know, that's a lot of ammunition that you have. And the question is, how do you use that uh, effectively? And on the other hand, they were, yell- they were uh, claiming there was extortion, uh, that the father of the young boy was trying to extort money by trying to get money for this. So that was out there. In fact, there was a criminal investigation about whether there truly was extortion. All right, so pause the extortion attempt for just a second. Bert is used um, to for like entertainment stuff, right, as an entertainment lawyer, yeah. contracts and whatnot. And then this case obviously became something totally different. Totally different. It kind of became a lot of things. A canceled tour, a drug addiction, child molestation allegations, and possibly an extortion attempt. Not fun for anybody. And to make matters worse, according to the LA Times, Burt Fields wrote a letter to the LAPD accusing officers of using, uh, quote, disgraceful tactics and telling lies in order to push children into making accusations against Jackson, not Jordy Chandler, but other children that they'd interviewed, supposedly. Well, how'd that go over? Well, the president of the police commission, Gary Greenbaum, told the L.A. Times that the accusations about police misconduct were totally unfounded. And certainly one can imagine that didn't make the police very friendly to Jackson's people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Feldman, Jory Chandler's attorney, said that Fields' comments were just more evidence that he wanted to try the case in the press, not in the courtroom, which is like a real sick burn for a lawyer to say. On November 23rd, 1993... Burt Fields stood before a judge and moved to delay Jackson's civil case for six years. This may sound like a ridiculous delay, but it was understandable from Fields' perspective. Wouldn't he want to delay the civil case so as to avoid Jackson possibly incriminating himself with statements which could be used against him in any potential criminal proceedings? The six-year delay would have put the civil case beyond the statute of limitations for any criminal charges that could have been lodged against Jackson. It was unlikely that the judge would grant the delay, but still, no harm in trying. According to Fields from our interview, uh, 
So I was absolutely convinced that there was nothing to this claim and that at trial, this guy would get destroyed. The father, not the son. Yeah. Feldman was having none of that. During the hearing, he argued that delaying a civil trial until criminal investigations concluded would damage Jordy Chandler's well-being. He submitted a statement to the court from the boy's therapist that claimed a delay would cause undue emotional distress on him. To no one's surprise, the judge ruled in Jordy Chandler's favor. He set a trial date for March 21, 1994, just four months away. Feldman talked about this strategy years later to the Los Angeles County Bar Association. If we could get Michael Jackson to answer the complaint before the boy turned 14 years of age, we were entitled to a trial in 90 days. That was the selling point to the district attorney to give me a chance to see if we can get this under a 90-day speedy, or 120 days it probably was, 120-day speedy trial. The defense, with all due respect to them, had to worry about not just defending Michael Jackson in a civil court, but more importantly, knew there was a criminal case behind this civil case, and they had to defend him worrying about his Fifth Amendment rights. As he tried to fight back our motions for a speedy trial, we litigated that hard in papers. And we always paid respect to his uh, rights under the Fifth Amendment, but we also made it clear that if he had nothing to hide, and given we had a 13-year-old child at stake, we ought to go and have this litigated. It'll be behind both of them. Jackson's own lawyers agreed that the ruling to have the trial come within the next 120 days was a devastating tactical loss for their team. But those weren't the only blows that came during the hearing. According to Maureen North's 1994 Vanity Fair article, Nightmare in Neverland, Burt Fields had misinterpreted information hastily given to him by Jackson's other attorney, Howard Weitzman, and told the judge that a grand jury in Santa Barbara had issued two subpoenas for witnesses, saying, quote, you can't get closer to an indictment than that. Howard Weitzman was aghast. Outside the courtroom, he said Fields had, quote, misspoke himself. Best they knew, there was no grand jury convening anywhere, and no indictment was eminent for Michael Jackson. In author J. Randy Tarabarelli's mesmerizing account of Jackson's life, Michael Jackson, the magic, the madness, the whole story, he reports that when Jackson heard about his legal team's attempt to delay a trial, he was livid. He thought it made him look like he was trying to duck justice. What's Bert doing, he asked, later saying, I've got a ship of fools representing me, and we're all going down. Bert Fields is more of an upper-crust, Tony kind of a lawyer. He's a big, firm head guy. Attorney Carl Douglas, a member of Jackson's new defense team, who took over after Bert Fields and Anthony Pelicano were out, in my interview with him. We were dealing with more of a base kind of a circumstance, child molestation kind of gritty. There was a criminal component. Bert is a businessman first and foremost. And he, I don't have a first hand knowledge. He may well have been concerned about the implications on his firm's practice if he continued representing Michael Jackson in this circumstance. 
This was not, you know, it wasn't the me too time, but still it wasn't comfortable. I'm sure in all circles of West Los Angeles and the entertainment field, I dare say. During that time that Jackson was in rehab, Elizabeth Taylor became his de facto spokesperson. Here she was in Washington, dedicating an AIDS clinic. I have suffered and dealt with the same kind of medical problem now afflicting my friend, Michael Jackson. Because of that, and because of our friendship, when Michael's doctor called to ask if I could help, I was glad to intervene. Out of respect for his privacy, which I know to be extremely important at this time, I have not spoken publicly about our movements or about Michael's exact location. And because of my regard for him and my concern for his health, I will continue to be silent on these matters. In one, you had Elizabeth Taylor on television talking about how innocent Michael Jackson was and what a shame it was. Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, speaking about the case at an event for the L.A. County Bar Association in 2010. You had Michael Jackson canceling a worldwide tour. This is the king of pop, and he is canceling a worldwide tour uh, I think it was the dangerous tour at the time because he was so upset about what this little boy was doing and so fragile. Elizabeth Taylor transitioned in this time of crisis for Michael Jackson from best friend and confidant to a sort of legal advisor. According to author J. Randy Tiraborelli in his biography of Jackson, Taylor began to hold these salons with Jackson's lawyers publicists, and others at her house to pitch strategies. She also told them they needed to be more aggressive. Members of Jackson's team began to call her the queen of the defense, and she was vocal about her dislike for the way that private investigator Anthony Pelicano handled things from the beginning. We can't keep track of him, she said of Pelicano. He makes me nervous. The next thing that happened was there began to be talks of settlement. And why don't we settle this thing? I was very much against settlement. I, I, I felt it would, there's no way to keep it a secret. And if you pay a substantial sum of money, and he wanted a lot of money. Attorney Burt Fields from our interview. No one is ever going to believe you're innocent. And Didn't you say Elizabeth Taylor kind of pushed him? Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, and I can't blame her. She was his best friend and was really, by this time, running things. And while I was feeling and saying, you can't pay these people off. There's no way to keep the payment a secret. I don't care what you say in the agreement. It's going to get out. And nobody is ever going to believe you ever again. Nobody's going to believe your innocence because if you're innocent, why would you pay whatever it was, 20 or $35 million. You just don't do that. You know, maybe yeah. you settle a case for 50000 or even half a million bucks, but $20 million or right. $30 million? No. But Elizabeth Taylor's view was, Michael, you've got all the money in the world. This is a pittance to you. 
get rid of it. Why do you need to go through a trial and any risk that they're going to find you're guilty? And I mean, I believe you're innocent, but she did believe it, I think. But uh, her attitude was, if you've got the money, just pay it and get rid of this. Get it out of your life. So you had these two divergent views, and she was clearly prevailing. Uh, she was very close to him. I was not. I was just his lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was definitely leading that way, and I resigned. And that really was the extent of my involvement. Did you uh, put except in a phone to watch. call? I think I wrote a letter. I don't think I put in a phone call. I think I wrote a letter just saying, I'm sorry. I didn't say because you're doing the wrong mm-hmm. thing. Fields said he had resigned as Jackson's attorney on November 23rd and delivered his written resignation on December 3rd, 1993, according to the LA Times. At the time, private investigator Anthony Pelicano also resigned. I don't buy that Bert Fields resigned. Reporter Diane Diamond. I know that he wanted to take this thing to trial. He wanted to fight Evan Chandler and the Jordy Chandler allegations. And then he, quote, resigned. I don't think so. I think the better scenario on that is that Michael Jackson hired a criminal defense attorney. Burt Fields was an entertainment lawyer. And I think Burt just got um, elbowed out of the way. Nobody wanted to go to trial. According to Tara Borelli's account, Burt Fields said of the case, it was a nightmare and I wanted to get the hell out of it as soon as possible. Jackson then put his hope in his other lawyers. Howard Weitzman, and then ultimately Weitzman brings on Johnny Cochran. For those who don't know about Johnny Cochran. Johnny Cochran was, as far as I could recall, always an icon in the black community. He was known for being a champion of the oppressed. Attorney Carl Douglas from our interview. So Johnny Cochran was always a big deal for me in Los Angeles, being African-American and wanting to be a lawyer. I tell my friends and colleagues that Johnny Cochran was always as famous before OJ in Los Angeles as he became nationwide after O.J. Simpson. Carl Douglas first interviewed for a position under Johnny Cochran in the mid-1980s as a bond lawyer. And after a brief stint as a commodities broker, Cochran asked him about coming back to his firm because Douglas had both civil and criminal experience. So he came back to manage Cochran's office. It was around this time that the conversations began about how Michael Jackson might return to the United States following his stint in rehab. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The discussion of Michael coming back to L.A., those conversations took place with Johnny and Gil Garcetti, and he learned there were no pending charges in L.A., Chandler lived in L.A. County. Michael lived in Santa Barbara County. So there were not companion, but different investigations going on from different law enforcement agencies. The more aggressive was Tom Snedden. Tom Snedden, who we will get to later, was the district attorney of Santa Barbara County and later led the case against Jackson in the 2005 trial. And... He was pushing, as I remember, the search warrant on Michael's body to confirm or, or refute allegations of what birthmarks or whatever he may have had on his body. But I remember there were um, significant negotiations between with Johnny Howard and Snedden in his office about the terms of that. The sensitive nature of it precluded my presence at that point in time there was a big pr machine out there for michael jackson jordy chandler's attorney larry feldman speaking at the la county bar association event he had a lot at stake and a lot of money at stake and there were lots of people invested in him coming through this unscathed and so we had to figure out how to deal with this and ultimately we figured that we would do this in a way in which we litigated the case extremely hard. That we would not have to talk to the press, we would not have to go on the Today Show, but that we would embark on a strategy that allowed us to say everything we needed to say in court documents, which are public records generally. Feldman's litigation was brilliant to say the least. He collected damning deposition testimony from many Jackson employees, including one who claimed to have witnessed the singer naked with boys in both a shower and whirlpool bath, according to the LA Times reporting. Another disastrous blow came when Judge David M. Rothman ruled, much to the dismay of Jackson's lawyers, Johnny Cochran and Howard Weitzman, the information obtained during the discovery process in the boys' lawsuit could be turned over to prosecutors. The biggest swing Feldman litigated in the civil case, though, came right around Christmas, just as Jackson was getting his bearings back upon returning to the United States. Feldman, again, speaking to the L.A. County Bar Association. When we wanted to have an exam of Michael Jackson... We, and take pictures of Michael Jackson because the young boy made allegations about his physical parts, his private parts, as you saw. We had to describe them in detail in order to show why 
we were entitled to these pictures. So we litigated it hard, but clearly within the rules of litigation. Michael Jackson was discharged from the Charter Rehab Clinic in London. And on December 10th, 1993, he flew back to the United States in a 727 owned by Hassan Bokia, the Sultan of Brunei. Jackson looked healthier than he had in a long time. But within 10 days, per Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman's request, on December 20th, Jackson would be forced to submit to one of the most painful episodes of his entire life. After much negotiation with Jackson's attorneys, investigators arrived at Neverland Ranch in Los Olivos with a search warrant to examine, photograph, and videotape Jackson's naked body. This included his penis, testicles, scrotum, buttocks, and anus. According to Diane Diamond, those present were Santa Barbara DA Tom Snedden, Santa Barbara Sheriff's Detective Russ Burcham, Sheriff's Office photographer Gary Spiegel, a dermatologist named Dr. Richard Strick, LAPD Detective Federico Sicard, and, on the opposing side, Jackson attorneys Howard Weitzman and Johnny Cochran, as well as Jackson's longtime bodyguard, Bill Bray, and two of Jackson's physicians, Dr. Arnold Klein, his dermatologist, and Dr. David Forecast, the medical doctor from London. None of Jackson's team were quite sure what, exactly, the detectives were looking for. They hadn't been made aware that back in August, Jordy Chandler had described to the police, in vivid detail, the markings on Jackson's genitals and lower torso due to vitiligo, and described Jackson's penis and pubic hair. Nor were they aware that Jordy Chandler made a drawing of Jackson's private parts for both Lauren Weiss and later, attorney Larry Feldman. At this juncture, Team Jackson only understood that Michael Jackson would have to cooperate with the body examination and photography, or if he refused, that refusal would likely give authorities probable cause to arrest him on the spot. Nevertheless, Jackson was stunned. According to multiple reports, affidavits, sworn declarations, and interviews with law enforcement present at the event, Jackson became hysterical as the session was preparing to begin. He slapped one of the doctors, screamed at multiple law enforcement agents, get the hell out of here, and called them all sons of bitches. According to Diamond, at one point, Jackson stormed out of the room after shouting, you assholes. His attorneys, first Weitzman and then Cochran, attempted to soothe him and explain the details of the examination. There were several more outbursts, and Jackson's other doctor attempted to calm him down. Finally, around 6 p.m., Jackson agreed to submit to the demands of the search warrant. According to author J. Randy Terraborelli, he removed a robe and then a gray bathing suit, standing now fully nude before law enforcement agents. As photographers began their work, Jackson stared at a painting of Elizabeth Taylor, weeping quietly. Please don't make me do this, he murmured. Sir, said one of the detectives, we have no choice. There, police photographers and videographers took pictures of Jackson's most intimate parts. They recorded the markings from vitiligo and measured the length of his pubic hair. At one point, right before him, they debated whether or not he was circumcised. This would become an important point in evaluating the accuracy of the description Jordy Chandler had given to his attorney, to the police, 
and to the Los Angeles district attorney investigators. When their work was done, according to those present, Jackson stormed out of the room, crying, how could this happen to me? How could this happen to me? Over and over. Jordy Chandler, according to multiple accounts, had described Jackson as circumcised. He was not. Jackson's defenders, including his lawyer in the 2005 trial, which we'll get to later, would make much of that fact. Here is Thomas Mesereau, who represented Jackson in the later case. My understanding is that he completely um, misstated uh, what he remembered about Mr. Jackson's penis, particularly the issue of circumcision versus non-circumcision. Now, if you say someone was circumcised and they're not, that's quite a misstatement, if you ask me. And I'm forever astounded that people who support the prosecution in the case, people who support other accusers, continually try and use Jordy Chandler's description of Mr. Jackson's penis as a reason why Mr. Chandler must have been credible. And they completely ignore the fact that he misstated whether or not Mr. Jackson was circumcised or not. Thomas Mesereau's private investigator in the 2005 trial, Scott Ross, agreed. What I recall is that he guessed wrong. The point being is that none of what, I I can't say none, because maybe he walked in when the guy was in the shower. I don't know. All right, so we're getting into this. Yeah, well, that's the debate, because Jordy Chandler got it wrong. Yes, that is one big point of controversy. Reporter Diane Diamond. I think when you take the totality of what Jordan Chandler got right and verifiable, um, the dark spot under the aroused penis and the scrotum markings and everything else, and I, I had police sources tell me too, Jordan Chandler was one of the best witnesses they ever had in a child sexual abuse case because he remembered everything. He remembered the room numbers of hotels. He remembered the color of the bedspread. He remembered how the drapes were, if there was a sheer underneath or not. He remembered what the bathroom looked like. And and these police officers went to these hotel rooms, and they checked out what this kid was saying. Uh, He was so good in his descriptions that he even could describe what Michael Jackson's genitalia looked like when he was aroused. There were certain birthmarks that he reported that turned out to be exactly true. Um, I, I think that one bit about circumcision, you could forgive a kid for not knowing that. I confirmed with former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss whether or not Jordy Chandler's description of the blotches were correct or not. Correct. Not just the genitalia, but a particular uh, mark Um, on the underside of his penis, uh, which the victim described. And we had uh, information that that Michael had always maintained uh, that he never was seen naked in front of any of these children. Circumcised or not, the body search didn't result in enough corroborative evidence to arrest Jackson at that time. Still, the body search left him feeling broken. It was, after all, famously, the most humiliating day in the life of Michael Jackson. According to the Washington Post, 
Jackson publicist Lee Solter said that Jackson had decided that he wanted to make a public statement. So satellite time was purchased, and then uplink coordinates were made available to news organizations. The cost of the satellite time is unknown, but Jackson was determined to reach an audience to give his side of the story and, most of all, to proclaim his innocence. As you may already know, after my tour ended, I remain out of the country undergoing treatment for a dependency on pain medication. This medication was initially prescribed to see the excruciating pain that I was suffering after recent reconstructive surgery on my scalp. Jackson then pivoted to the issues of the child molestation allegations. There have been many disgusting statements made recently concerning allegations of improper conduct on my part. These statements about me are totally false. As I have maintained from the very beginning, I am hoping for a speedy end to this horrifying, horrifying experience to which I have been subjected. I ask all of you to wait and hear the truth before you label or condemn me. Don't treat me like a criminal, because I am innocent. Oh, God, I remember watching this. Yeah, I knew nothing about the allegations at the time. I was probably like 10 years old. And I think I remember kind of lying by the heater watching it on TV. You know, it was Michigan in the wintertime. And I think Home Improvement was on. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of presidential address type interruption happened. And then Michael Jackson started talking, you know, at least to me, out of the blue about being strip searched. I have been forced to submit to a dehumanizing and humiliating examination by the Santa Barbara County Sheriff Department and the Los Angeles Police Department earlier this week. They served a search warrant on me which allowed them to view and photograph my body including my penis, my buttocks, my lower torso, thighs, and any other error that they wanted. I, you know, I was a little bit older, um, but I remember being just totally weirded out. It just got so, like, awful and strange at the end. I... Yeah, it got, like, really biblical. Yeah, exactly. If I am guilty of anything, it is of believing what God said about children. Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In no way do I think that I am God, but I do try to be God-like in my heart. Judge David M. Rothman, the same judge who set the civil trial for March 21, 1994, ruled that Jackson would have to begin sitting for a deposition by Larry Feldman by the end of January. Jackson agreed to be deposed on January 18th, according to the LA Times. There was speculation in the press about whether Jackson would plead the Fifth Amendment to avoid any self-incrimination, a move that would make prudent legal sense, but could make Jackson look even guiltier to the public. According to attorney Carl Douglas, in early 1994, there began to be serious negotiations between Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, and Jackson's legal team, with a panel of three judges hired to mediate the discussions. I remember quite clearly Jack Tenner, retired judge, no longer alive, was one of the three judges at this conference at Feldman's offices, I believe, sitting down, talking about the wisdom of resolving the case. I remember clearly Tenner had a very 
open and honest style. He might take off his shoe and bang the desk to get a deal. He and Johnny were um, colleagues for, for years, respect each other for years. He had Johnny's respect. That's why he was one of the three judges to doing this. And he said, the question isn't whether it's he did it or not, or whether you could win or not. The question was, what was it worth to Michael Jackson to make this go away? Soon, an agreement was drafted, and it fell to Carl Douglas to deliver the out-of-court settlement to Michael Jackson to sign. Um, I was Mikey. Let Mikey do it from the old commercials. And so January 24th, 1994, I was charged with taking the settlement that had been reached the day or so before and delivering it to Michael for Michael to sign and to explain. Now, you got to understand, Michael wasn't always the most studious of clients. But so I knew the settlement agreement was 16 pages, 18 pages long, double-spaced. And there wouldn't be a chance in in the world for me to review 17 pages of documents with Michael Jackson. He was at, I believe it was one of the hotels to have an M, start with an M. And he was in the bungalows there. And I remember arranging to see him so that he would expect me. I remember knocking on his door. He opened the door. He was there by himself. We sat down on the couch. It was like a one bedroom suite. Um, He was alone as far as I knew. I spent maybe 20 minutes, half hour. We went over the terms. Um, he knew about the numbers. The numbers is what I talked about, that it's a release, that it's, everything is gone. You can't talk about anything. And I watched him sign. And I then said my goodbyes and took it back to the group and went went from there. And then the, the next day it was the press conference. We wish to jointly announce a mutual resolution of this lawsuit. On January 25th, 1994, Jackson attorneys Howard Weitzman and Johnny Cochran appeared with Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, for a joint press conference. As you are aware, the plaintiff has alleged certain acts of impropriety by Mr. Jackson, and from the inception of those allegations, Mr. Jackson has always maintained his innocence. However, the emotional trauma and strain on the respective parties have caused both parties to reflect on the wisdom of continuing with this litigation. The plaintiff has agreed the lawsuit should be resolved and it will be dismissed in the near future. While Mr. Jackson continues to maintain his innocence, he withdraws any previous allegations of extortion. 
Oh, so we forgot to pick this back up. What happened with the with that extortion business? So amazingly, the day before the settlement was announced at the joint press conference, a guy named Michael J. Montagna or Montagna, who was deputy L.A. County District Attorney, he headed the organized crime unit. He announced that they would decline to file any criminal charges against Evan Chandler for extortion. Well, that's an amazing coincidence. Yeah, day before the settlement. Right. Um, so the redacted settlement agreement that I found on the Smoking Gun website states towards the end that Jackson, and it lists him and all his representatives and companies, there's dozens and dozens of them, mm-hmm. and his lawyers agreed to, you know, it says, quote, agree to make no further claims or statements and then it goes on about Minor, which would be Jordy, or his parents have been in June of any wrongful conduct with regard to Jackson. So it's basically saying, like, they're not going to talk shit about each other. <laughs> so they basically all agreed to never talk about it or talk about each other ever again. With, that, with... Yeah, exactly. That's Jeez. why it's called a, a settlement. This will allow the parties to get on with their lives in a more positive and productive manner. Much of the suffering these parties have been put through was caused by the publicity surrounding this case. We jointly request that members of the press allow the parties to close this chapter in their lives with dignity so that the healing process may begin. A few moments later, Johnny Cochran read a statement. As Mr. Fellman has correctly indicated, Michael Jackson has maintained his innocence from the beginning of this matter, and now as this matter will soon be concluded, he still maintains that innocence. The resolution of this case is in no way an admission of guilt by Michael Jackson. In short, he is an innocent man who does not intend to have his career and his life destroyed by rumors and innuendos. So today, the time has come for Michael Jackson to move on to new business to get on with his life, to start the healing process, and to move his career forward to even greater heights. Jackson attorney Carl Douglas recalled the scene while talking to the Los Angeles County Bar Association years later. There were probably 15 or 20 satellite trucks. There were 50 or more members of the media. Whenever you see those scenes, you'll see my head sticking in the back right between Larry and Johnny. And I'll remember always the scene as we were walking away from that press statement. Johnny called me son. He said, son, take a look at this, because you will probably never see a sight like this again. And I remember a few, just one year later, January of 1995, We were driving in my car that I was able to buy after the Michael Jackson case. I had a little bit of money on the side. And we were driving around Broadway, turning right onto Temple. And there was a phalanx of reporters and media. They had police officers out there just to control the crowd. And I looked and said, Dad, what about this? The settlement, however, came as a surprise to law enforcement officials who had been working on a criminal case against Michael Jackson. 
We had no idea uh, that the case was going to settle until it settled. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. We were disappointed about it. At the time, the amounts of the settlement agreement were confidential, but sources claim the figures ranged between 15 and $24 million. Almost a decade later, a copy of the original Chandler settlement was leaked to reporter Diane Diamond. I found a redacted version posted on the website, The Smoking Gun. Let me, let me put it this way. Of course, I cannot tell you my source on that document, but I can tell you where I got the document from. The document was carelessly redacted years earlier and put into a file, a public file. And, and no one really realized that it was in a court file in Santa Barbara County until a source of mine ran across it. It was very interesting, started to read it, and there, several pages in, were the actual figures, the amount of the settlement, which had been carelessly not redacted. There had been a lot of redactions through the whole document, but the, the figure, the amount of the settlements was right there. Can you break down those amounts? Do you have them? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I can break them down to the dollar. Um, let's see. For Jordan Chandler, the settlement gave him $15,331,250. $15.3 million. It also gave Jordan Chandler about a $2 million signing bonus. Uh, his parents, who, of course, were divorced, each got $1.5 million upon their signing it. And um, I got from very good authority that Larry Feldman, their attorney, the team of attorneys that they hired, had racked up about $5 million in legal fees. And all those legal fees were also paid by Michael Jackson. So you add it all up, it's about $25 million. And that, of course, does not include what Jackson paid his own legal team or his private investigators or anyone else that he engaged. Following the multi-million dollar settlement, it seemed that everyone would finally be able to move on with their lives. Except they wouldn't. There is, of course, one legal obstacle to getting on with their lives, and that's the criminal investigation. David Goldstein, reporting for Channel 9 News in 1994. The DA did not participate in any of these settlement negotiations, and Feldman says there were no provisions made for his client not to testify against Jackson. However, Feldman doesn't sound like a man who wants to see this case go to trial. We'll take it one day at a time. I want to sit down with the district attorney, you have to understand, has not been sharing information. I don't know where the district attorney is. DA Gil Garcetti said the probe of Jackson is ongoing. It will not be affected by the settlement, he says, and he believes the boy will be allowed to testify. On February 7, 1994, a grand jury was impaneled in Santa Barbara, and another the following month in Los Angeles. Now, for real, I honestly don't know what a grand jury is. Can you tell me that again? Yeah, and don't feel like an idiot. I am a bozo, and I had no idea what a grand jury was. And even when I found out, I had to like explain it to myself a okay. hundred times. All right. So it's a great question. A grand jury works closely with prosecutors to help them determine whether to file charges against a suspect in a crime. 
So grand jury proceedings are held in the strictest confidence, and it's a crime to reveal the grand jury testimony while the grand jury is convened. So wit witnesses can talk, but no press is allowed. And all the testimony is under oath. And it's kind of this place where the prosecutors, in this case for L.A., Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss and Assistant DA Bill Hodgman, they're able to offer up evidence and witnesses without the potential defendant or lawyers or the defendant lawyers present to object to the prosecutor's evidence or to present any contrary defense testimony or evidence. I see. So it's kind of like a dry run almost. It's like a trial, but without Jackson and Jackson's lawyers to see if there's enough shit to move forward. So it's kind of, it's kind of like a rehearsal of sorts. I mean, why, yeah. what, but why, why do, why do they do that? Well, it's, it's basically a way for them to determine whether there's enough evidence to bring an indictment against the defendant and begin formal prosecution. So they can just call any witnesses they want. Is that other it? than, other than the defendants? Basically, yes. Like in L.A., they called. Michael Jackson's mother came to court in a stretch limo to testify before the grand jury. Catherine Jackson in the blue dress answered questions in front of the secret panel for a little over an hour. Oh, his poor mother. I mean, you could definitely say so. It must have been grueling for her. According to reports, she may have been called to testify about her son's physical appearance because investigators were concerned, as I said earlier, that Jackson may have altered the appearance of his genitals while he was in Europe so that it didn't match Jordy Chandler's description. <sighs> and Jackson's attorney, Howard Weitzman, described the move of bringing Jackson's mom to the stand in real poor taste that borders on harassment. When she emerged, Mrs. Jackson wouldn't answer any questions, only saying she believes in Michael. I'd just like to say before I went in, I was sure my son's innocent. And now that I've finished and completed my testimony, I still feel the same way. At the other grand jury, the one in Santa Barbara, Tom Snedden, the DA, was the one running the show. Santa Barbara County DA Tom Snedden in the glasses is joined by L.A. County Deputy DA Lauren Weiss and L.A. County Assistant District Attorney Bill Hodgman. The three have teamed up to present evidence against Michael Jackson to a secret grand jury. But this time, the conclusion of a criminal case could land Jackson in jail. In Santa Barbara, one of the witnesses who has served a grand jury subpoena was none other than Norma Stakos, Jackson's former assistant slash Neverland manager, who left for Greece just before she was scheduled to be interviewed by police. In this clip, a young reporter shouted questions at her. Hey, Norma, did you ever drive young boys up to the ranch and leave them overnight? That sounds like Diane Diamond, is that right? I thought the exact same thing, and I confirmed it was her. And did Jordy Chandler testify to that? That was the biggest problem. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Sources say the 14-year-old boy seen on the right of the screen may not be pointing the finger at Michael Jackson after all, and the case may be falling apart. Channel 9 News has learned the boy may now be reluctant to testify against Jackson because he has lost faith in the prosecution. Reporter David Goldstein, again, for Channel 9 News in 94. But Larry Feldman has said previously, the longer the case drags on, the less likely the boy will testify. Johnny Cochran speaks here. In the past 10 days, the rumors and speculations surrounding this case have reached a fever pitch and by and large have been false and outrageous. Without another reliable victim to come forward with allegations of molestation against Michael Jackson, Jordy Chandler's family had grown increasingly uncomfortable with the boy having to take the stand in a criminal trial. Now, you know, it's sure we understood. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. That's one of the reasons uh, they perhaps uh, didn't want to go along with the investigation anymore and they were going to exercise their right not to testify, or he, the child was, anyway. And we were certainly disappointed because we had not, you know, we hadn't finished the investigation yet. But we had, uh, we had some uh, strong corroborating evidence, we believed, of uh, what the child had told us. According to Weiss, Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, met with her to discuss his concerns about the effects that a criminal trial might have on Jordy Chandler and Jordy Chandler's family following the settlement agreement. He um, had a meeting with us uh, and uh, with the parents, and uh, we were told at that meeting that uh, there had been death threats to the family by fans of Michael Jackson, that in fact a, a dead rat had been left on the doorstep of the father. Uh, there had been these kinds of incidents. And uh, number one, he had told us all along that uh, his client hadn't wanted to uh, be the whole case that he didn't want to go one-on-one -on -one with Michael Jackson. Uh, if there weren't, he, there had to be other other victims in the case. He was pretty much telling us that all along. Uh, he said, you know, you haven't really developed anything uh, at this point, uh, and you can't assure us of the safety of my client. And, you know, prosecutors can never assure a victim uh, their safety. We don't know what's going to happen in the world out there by some crazed individual. So, of course, we could not assure him of that. You have a 13-year-old boy. And whether it happened or it didn't happen, their lives are in the balance of all this. It's not just about money. These kids go to school. These kids have friends. Jordy Chandler's attorney, 
Larry Feldman, speaking about the case at the Los Angeles County Bar Association. These kids at 13 years old, boys at 13 years old, are going through a very difficult time in their lives. They're trying to figure out what they are, what they're about, their sexual well-being, what that all means to them. And here it is, these most sensitive issues are in the press, and it didn't take long. I don't know so much about the second case, but in the first case, for sure, Every kid on the west side of Los Angeles knew who the plaintiff was, even though the plaintiff's name at that time remained uh, secret. So as a lawyer, you have this real burden, besides trying to make the case come out right for the client, to think about the ramifications of this, whether you really want to take on the king of pop, whether you really want to be branded with this because no matter how it comes out, you are um, going to have people who believe it to be true no matter what the verdict and believe it to be untrue no matter what the verdict. So, and all you're going to have at the end of the day on the civil side is perhaps money. And what happened with those secret grand juries? The Santa Barbara grand jury disbanded in April of 94 and the LA grand jury disbanded in July of 94 both without indictments. So transcripts of the proceedings were never released. Like in the 2005 trial, which we'll obviously get to later, they had a grand jury and that disbanded with an indictment. So all those transcripts were public. Oh, so the, the, so the case has just fizzled out? They fizzled out, but Jordy Chandler was walking away with a lot of money. Ultimately, that's what happened. There's a lot of give and take, a lot of back and forth, a lot of screaming and yelling, a lot of threats. Um, But in the end, that's exactly what happened. Reporter Diane Diamond. Michael Jackson's camp paid millions and millions and millions of dollars to make Jordy Chandler and his family be quiet for the rest of their lives. I asked former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss why, like in other cases, a trial can proceed without a complaining witness. Versus, like in this case, the DA didn't move forward with a criminal trial against Michael Jackson, despite Jordy Chandler refusing to testify. Well, first of all, on those cases that you're talking about where you can go forward even though someone doesn't testify, you still have to have other evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so if it was a domestic violence case and the victim uh, refused to testify, if there was a neighbor that saw the abuse or there was a doctor's report and there were physical findings, you have to have other evidence so you can prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt if you don't have a victim. So in a child molestation case such as the Jackson case, number one, Uh, There's no uh, physical abuse. There's no injury that has ever been documented, right? Uh, Because in this kind of a case, uh, and from my understanding of what happened in 93 uh, with my uh, my particular part of the case, uh, it was uh, a lot of fondling. Uh, It was uh, some oral copulation. Uh, it there there were there would have been no physical findings 
Uh, and obviously, these kinds of cases are done in private, uh, so there's no witnesses. Certainly, there's surrounding uh, circumstantial evidence, but when you're dealing with a person who is an iconic figure worldwide. So when you prosecute a case like that, you better have a darn strong case and you better have your your victim testify. And under the law uh, laws in California, if a victim of child molestation or domestic violence uh, refuses to testify, uh, you can get them into court if you serve them with a subpoena. Uh, you can actually have them arrested to come to court on the subpoena. But once they're in court and they take the witness stand, uh, a judge, and if they refuse to testify, no judge is allowed to hold them in contempt. Uh, so they, they can just say, I refuse to testify. It's a, a civil code uh, procedure. Uh, civ uh, sorry, California Code of Civil Procedure section. And so um, that's what you're faced with in this kind of a situation. Uh, but it is no different uh, than a case where if you, let's say you have a, a robbery victim and that victim never reports the robbery, but there's someone across the street that sees thugs beat up like an old man or something and they take a wallet from him out of his pocket uh, and make off with it, you can prosecute that case without the victim. But that's because you have all the surrounding evidence that could prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. We didn't have that in, in a child molestation case like, like we had. Even though the grand juries concluded their work without producing an indictment of Jackson, the L.A. District Attorney's Office maintained that the Jackson case was still open, but the case couldn't move forward unless more alleged victims of Michael Jackson came forward to testify. But even with the investigation still open, there was little movement from the District Attorney's Office that summer. Their energies were going elsewhere. And who could blame them? O.J. Simpson's wife and another man, Ronald Goldman, had just been murdered, and Simpson was now the primary suspect. After a grueling investigation and labored settlement, the summer of 1994 moved easily for Michael Jackson. Before the season was through, though, a judge made a ruling in another case involving Jackson, the one brought by the former Havenhurst guards who had claimed that they'd been fired for knowing too much about Jackson's relationships with underage boys. On September 15th, the judge in that case ruled that Jackson could plead the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination which enabled him to avoid answering questions under oath whether or not he sexually abused children. On September 21st, Los Angeles District Attorney Gil Garcetti, Santa Barbara District Attorney Tom Snedden, and Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss held a press conference to announce that they were not bringing charges against the singer. However, it was noted that the case was not closed but merely inactive, which meant if more victims chose to come forward, they could proceed with criminal charges. So you de you definitely believe and believe that Jordan Chandler was a victim of molestation by Michael Jackson. Yes, I, I believe that, or I would not have uh, wanted the investigation to continue, and I definitely believe it. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. The, the, let me just make it clear. 
my belief in that uh, does not mean that I believe we had a provable case at that point in time. Uh, you have to file a case only when, when there's a probability of conviction. That was always uh, the situation in this case. That was always problematic in this case. According to the LA Times, Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, said, I think we have seen treatment different for Mr. Jackson, different for celebrities over the years than we see for other people in similar situations. When a credible witness accuses someone of molestation, he said, quote, those people are generally arrested, placed in jail, and the criminal process begins. For whatever reasons, and you'll have to ask the district attorney and the police, that didn't happen here. I asked Lauren Weiss if she felt that there was any truth to some people's feelings that District Attorney Gil Garcetti didn't give enough support to her and Bill Hodgman's investigation. That is 100% not true. First of all, uh, Gil uh, allowed Hodgman and me uh, whatever we needed. Obviously, they paid for us to go all the way to Australia. Uh, he was not micromanaging our investigation. He, I'm assuming, was getting reports from Hodgman as to what was going on. Uh, he could not have done anything uh, that we didn't do uh, to try to continue the investigation and to try to have uh, our, our victim uh, proceed with the investigation. But after that settlement, uh, why, why would any parent want to put their kid through a media circus when, when they had settled for what the media was reporting was a huge amount of money? Why, why would they want to do that uh, to their child? So they had uh, their perspective. We had our perspective. Uh, but uh, this was not a decision uh, not to to try to go forward by Garcetti or by any of us. Uh, we were very disappointed. The decision also angered some advocates for children. Lupe Ross, from the foster parents of Los Angeles County, was quoted saying about Jackson, if this was an ordinary person, he would have been charged. This would have gone to trial had it been anyone but him. Despite blowback, District Attorney Gil Garcetti maintained that law enforcement had done a thorough job in its investigation. We do not just willy-nilly go and charge someone after you get some initial information, he said. In hindsight, both sides, Jackson's lawyers and many of the investigators, put blame on the tabloids for giving money to former Jackson employees to appear in stories and on camera. Here, Johnny Cochran speaks at the settlement press conference that January. Throughout this ordeal, he has been subjected to an unprecedented media feeding frenzy, especially by the tabloid press. Tabloid press, press has shown an insatiable thirst for anything negative and have paid huge sums of money to people who have little or no information and who barely knew Michael Jackson. It's one of the great paradoxes of this case that the tabloids helped him to avoid prosecution and later to defend himself in court. By accepting payment, potential witnesses had compromised themselves, making their accounts seem motivated by money rather than a search for the truth. As the case wrapped up without a trial, 
Jackson remained largely out of the public eye, but he couldn't resist the spotlight for very long. Hello? That September, he appeared on stage to open the 1994 MTV Music Awards to thunderous applause. Welcome to the MTV Video Music Awards. Clad in a cropped, braided jacket and sporting his signature aviator sunglasses, he wasn't alone on stage. He stood beside Lisa Marie Presley, who was dressed in a stylish two-piece black outfit and looking nervous. Presley was now Jackson's wife after a secret wedding in the Dominican Republic that spring. Rumors had spread that it was a PR move, an arranged marriage intended to demonstrate that Jackson was attracted to adult women rather than prepubescent boys. Either way, Jackson had the world's attention. I'm very happy to be here. And just think, nobody thought this would last. There, in front of a television audience of five million viewers, Michael Jackson, the king of pop, leaned in and kissed the daughter of the king of rock and roll. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan, who's been pulling overtime on this episode. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Noni Yates. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. And production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. Special thanks to the good people at the Los Angeles County Bar Association for their permission to use extensive clips in this episode. LACBA serves attorneys, judges, and other legal professionals through committees, networking events, and pro bono opportunities, as well as public service and informational resources. You can find out more about their good work at LACBA.org.